are not necessarily those of KUCI, its management, the UC Board of Regents, or the new White House Gender Policy Council. Good morning, I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the February 23rd, 2021 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, my guest will be Ellen Mackey, Senior Ecologist with the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California to talk today about the tradeswomen that she's advocating for that are employed at the Metropolitan Water District. Ellen Mackey is Senior Ecologist with the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California and the Los Angeles and San Gabriel Rivers Watershed Council, where she conducts field mapping native vegetation. She is a founding board member of the East Valley Coalition, a nonprofit interested in quality of life issues in Sun Valley. Most recently, she co-authored Care and Maintenance of Southern California Native Plant Gardens. Ellen wears another hat, leader of the Metropolitan District's Union of Women's Caucus, her advocacy of which is the central theme of today's program. Ellen completed her bachelor's and her master's degrees in biology and ecology at Humboldt State University. In her capacity as a proponent of native planning, she's noted running her hand through a stand of California sage, and I'm quoting her, this is what the official scent of California should be, end of quote. What's taking place in the Metropolitan Water District workplace is a different odor entirely. Ellen comes to us today from Sun Valley. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Ellen Mackey. Thanks for having me, Claudia. And joining us later in this interview will be another tradeswoman employed by the Metropolitan Water District. We're recording this interview on February 20th. Well, just a little bit of institutional background. The Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, it's a regional wholesaler and the largest supplier of treated water in the US, serving parts of LA, Orange County, San Diego, Riverside, San Bernardino and Ventura counties. So this is the setting, this is the authority under which the tradeswomen are employed that are our concern today in this interview. So Adam Elma Harik broke the Los Angeles Times investigative piece last Sunday After reading this, Ellen, I just want to know what number of the Chinatown film series, what number is this? Chinatown number what? Oh God, I would have lost track at this point. I don't even know. But I I have to tell you, that is one of the things that's been going through my head. It's Chinatown, baby. So, and I wonder that because every time there's some kind of, that water is is the biggest deal that's ever gone on and allowed this city, this, this whole metropolitan area to grow. And so I always go back to those themes in, when Mulholland was creating all of this authority in uh, over a hundred years ago. Well, back to the investigative piece that Adam El-Maharik broke. Uh, it's been developing for many years. Ellen, would you, in your capacity as the union's women's caucus, Fill us in on what has been endured by tradeswomen for quite a long time. So uh, there's power, there's gender equity, and a workplace culture. They're all in play 
with this heady public authority that supplies one of the most basic services. Ellen, you have your own story that meets at the intersection of all those aspects, but let us together here explore mainly the cases that you have been involved with. And I'd like to caution listeners that some subject matter may be a trigger for victims of sexual abuse. So Ellen, shall we start with Jeff Keitlinger, the general manager, or we have also the board chair of the Metropolitan Water District, Gloria Gray. All their trajectories in public service are playing into what has been endured by the tradeswomen at the Metropolitan Water District. Okay, let me go back and say, women at Metropolitan have been harassed over many decades. This is nothing new. This has been going on for a very long time. And I think Gina can put more flesh on those statements later. So what we've been doing is exposing the decay within the district and we're determined to make change. So my involvement with the AFSME 1902 Women's Caucus began with a chance meeting with Gina in, I think, November 2019. We bonded over our different hairstyles. And then she began describing a horrifying litany of abuses. It's hard to get your head around. But at that meeting, we consulted with AFSME executive members and decided that a women's caucus would be the most effective path moving forward. We could have cover to meet, to discuss our issues and keep moving forward. We had to get past the holidays, but then we started meeting in March of 2020. We were meeting weekly and it became very clear within a week or two that this was very deep, chronic, crisis level intervention was needed. I began to quite frankly be concerned about the safety for the people involved. They reported and they're okay with me saying that there were several attempts at suicide. So I remember hearing this outpouring of anguish of daily harassment and torture, like water torture that they had to endure every day just to do their job. And I became so overwhelmed because I realized I'm not a therapist, I'm a scientist. And it would became very clear pretty soon that we either had to go big or go home. We decided to go big because something had to be done. Something had to break. So it was last May where I laid out an entire timeline backing up from the November election to how we would go to the board, keep speaking to the board. And I knew at that point that the newspapers would come forward and we'd be speaking with them. And I knew that we would be right here, right now, doing radio broadcasts because of the rot within Metropolitan. And I think it's important that the coverage in the Los Angeles Times, are you expecting, Ellen, more women are gonna keep coming forward? Women have already started coming forward. In fact, women started coming forward on Friday when the article broke. So we know that that's already happening. I think that an avalanche has started and women are starting to feel safe coming forward because people don't feel safe speaking up. When I was interim vice president two years ago, the first week at Union Station, I had three women in my office just from Union Station weeping, talking for an entire hour about the abuse they faced at Union Station. So it's not just the trains women, it's not just the field or just the desert, it's everywhere. 
These women were weeping, talking about how they went home every day crying because they were so they felt so abused and they had to put themselves together every morning in order to go back to work. And I had to respond to them and say, do you want me to speak to someone? Is there something you want me to do? And they said, no, I just want someone to know. So they felt safe enough to discuss the abuse with me, but they didn't want me to do anything because they're still afraid and they're waiting to see what happens. Some people have come forward and we're hoping that more people do come forward because this is no way to live. Your job supports your life and your family. You're not supposed to feel so drained by your job that you have nothing left for your family. But we're hearing that story repeatedly. It's very discouraging. Ellen, the Union Station, that is the head office of the Metropolitan Water District. And it it's really, the trappings just ooze with power because it's making decisions about a huge Colorado River drainage basin, the source of much of the water for the district. And it's like a tower of power there. So the lack of symmetry here in the tradeswomen that are having these transgressions perpetrated against them, they work out in the desert sort of field operations. And I want to sort of have that image in people's minds of this kind of boardroom tower of a hierarchical kind of water authority and the women that are out on their own being dealt with. So, and that's one clarification. In Adam's coverage, he quotes you as saying that managers treat the work camps as colonial possessions because they are out of sight and out of mind. So perhaps you can talk about some of those details and then we can talk about the institutional response to women that have followed proper channels and processes to make their complaints known to the agency. That's a lot to unpack. (laughs) So let me go back to the first part. It is a David and Goliath story, definitely. And that all the power of Metropolitan, and I hope you heard the air quotes around that, The David and Goliath story is definitely there, but just spoiler alert, David won and David became king. So that's just FYI to Metropolitan. The desert facilities are treated like colonial possessions. And I drew that analogy in my board statements, I think in November, because it's clear that the unit managers that are in charge of each one of those facilities consider it their location. And you're told immediately, this is my location you go through me. And it's like, whoa. So they're the colonial governors and downtown or the seat of power doesn't care really, although they would dispute this, but they allow those colonial governors slash unit managers to do whatever they need to do in order to keep the water flowing. So people have to endure a tremendous amount of abuse and the number of stories is staggering. It seems that they only promote friends and sycophants who were also accustomed or bought into this abusive culture. So most of the people just have to quietly endure the abuse, the snarky comments, and they have to go through their entire lives just numbing themselves in order to reach retirement so they can leave. And And there are many stories of women coming forward and men too, people who have retired, remembering what it was like who are actually reaching out and encouraging us now and saying, I'm so glad you're stepping forward. I couldn't do it then. I'm so glad you're doing it now. And these stories are coming forward all the way from the San Fernando Valley to Arizona. People who recognized that this culture had to change 
but it's really hard to speak up if you feel alone. Right. As you talked in preparation for this interview, Ellen, there's a unit manager and there may only be one female employee out there in those remote settings. And the power asymmetry with the manager and the tradeswoman, if the unit manager is so entitled about what they're allowed to do with people in their employ, that kind of corrosive workplace setting, it's really maiming these women as you've learned from their stories. Yeah, I think Gina speaks to that most powerfully, how corrosive it is. So she didn't face men who wanted her sexually, who resented her being there because she had a man's job, didn't want to work with women. So I think she speaks most powerfully to that. I don't have that because quite frankly, I know I'm a white woman. And as a scientist, I have a gravitas that most people don't have. And the women who are in the desert were quite frankly surprised at first that a professional woman from downtown would reach out and stand up for desert tradeswomen. And then they were concerned that I would leave within a few months when I understood the depth of the abuse, the torture that they faced. And I had to explain to them, we are all sisters in the same union. Of course, I'm going to stand up for you. And once, once I know, I feel bound to assist, or I'm also complicit in the abuse. Well, there, there was one thing you talked about where women are out in this vast, and if you just take a quick look at Google Maps, they are out in the vast California desert by themselves with perhaps one other man. And hopefully that man understands that he is not there to be a sexual predator. But when you hear Lee King's really powerful comments about some man she's with, put his hands on them without their permission. And if they try to report it, it's he said, she said, and Lee was not believed. At the time, Lee identified as female and the, re- the response would be, she is a difficult woman and she complains. And so it was dismissed as this is just the guy being, you know, a guy being a guy. Well, Lee felt it deeply and strongly and does not want to be touched and communicated that pretty strongly, but was not heard. So this is going to the issue of consent. The realization that women need to consent is not something that's understood. And as you said, by generations of the sort of patronage of employment at the Metropolitan Water District, that the unit managers are kind of primed with an attitude that employees can be dealt with on the unit manager's terms. So um, when you talk- But it's not just the unit managers. When they complained, when they went through the processes, which is something you alluded to earlier- If they tried to, or when they did file an EEO complaint, they felt that they were re-victimized by the investigator, by the the EEO officer. This would be Alicia King and more recently, Olivia Sanchez, asking them uncomfortable questions about how they were reacting. It's like, you're re-victimizing these women. Just take their stories. And they did not feel that they were being heard. They were under the microscope that they were the ones that had to defend themselves. So it became an obstacle. So Gloria Gray can say as many times as she wanted. So can Jeff Keitlinger. You can say you take it seriously, but until you sat through that interview, that wasn't the case because we just reported another EEO complaint this week, Gina and I together, because with most of these interviews, I find I need to sit with these people to make sure that they successfully go through these interviews and aren't re-victimized because I will intervene and Metropolitan knows I do. And when we finished... Gina said, wow, I've never had an interview like that. You were treated with so much deference that we're not treated with. They were treated differently. 
And the victimization, it has many prongs, Ellen, as you've talked to me in preparation for this interview. Talk about those other ways in which the tradeswomen have been undermined with the Metropolitan Water District's employees. I think we're all familiar with the numbers at this point that only nine women made it into the trades. Six of them filed EEO complaints. Out of those nine, only three made it through the program. And out of those three, only two remain. And one of them is Gina. And she's on paid administrative leave right now because she's under investigation as a result of a threat assessment that we initiated because she felt unsafe. So this is immediate retaliation that's just breaking in the last two weeks that Adam did allude to in the article last Friday. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Ellen Mackey, Metropolitan Water District Senior Ecologist who leads the Union's Women's Caucus And we're recording this interview on February 20th, capturing it when the news has broken about the city of Los Angeles, president of the city council is making a move. And we're going to talk about that length, but I know you have more to say about the working conditions. I would like to say that there are a number of women, and this is one of the common things that Adam brought out, that a number of them have had to take lower paying jobs that they haven't been supported through their pregnancies. And Gina speaks to that as well. So the district does not support women at all. And to this day, one of the issues that we still are addressing in the 21st century is that there are not even feminine hygiene products in desert locations. So Lee talks about sitting in, when they were still working, sitting in their truck, period starts and which woman doesn't have that story. And Lee was sitting in their own blood because there were no facilities and the nearest store is too far away. Miranda talks about an issue where she went to work because she's decided to use a Menzies cup and the support she needed to to manage her Menzies cup was not there. So things as basic as women bleeding. Ellen, is it some kind of unconscious kind of supply withholding that is going on with the agency? What role Uh, does the district have in this? It would almost be funny if it weren't so serious that we've heard stories of professional women engineers going out to the desert and their period starting and having to go to secretaries and whatnot and ask for supplies, which maybe could, maybe couldn't couldn't, bring with them. I don't know. We had to push hard. And finally, after several months of discussion with Diane Pittman, the head of HR, we said, we will buy the supplies if you can at least reimburse these people. Oh, no, we can't do that. Okay, well, then come up with a solution that works. Well, we'll put feminine hygiene products in one woman's restroom at each facility. And I went, that's not helpful. No, they need them in all the women's restrooms and the gender neutral bathrooms because you don't know when your period starts for women. This is a normal thing. As part of my comments, which I incorporated by reference, and we kept adding to that email. So executive management was also aware this was going on. They did not respond. They did not care. And they're going to, their heads are exploding right now. I'm pretty sure. And they're going to say, we did care until There are feminine hygiene products in every single woman's bathroom throughout the district from the Pacific Ocean to the Arizona border. 
I don't believe you. Prove it. So that was the feminine hygiene products. But women in the desert, there are lactation rooms that finally are being put in. One of them had a huge plug. It was like, how big do you think these pumps are? I know we're at a pump plant, but we're expressing breast milk. They don't have facilities like a sink so that women can clean themselves off after they've expressed and clean off their equipment. And they're expected to, at one facility, walk through a gym with their breasts out on the way to the bathroom that's down the hall from the gym, which is on the other side from the lactation room. It's not working. It's so dismissive. There's no support. And we're going to push hard for those facilities for women because Gina's story is another expression of how difficult it was for her to support her child after her birth. Gina Chavez is joining us now. Gina Chavez, welcome to the show. I really appreciate your taking time to share with us your particular story about you being a tradeswoman with the Metropolitan Water District. Welcome to the show, Gina. Hi, Claudia. Thank you so much for having me. The difficulties of having a child in a male-dominated workforce, it's really hard because it's even hard to bring up the subject to your immediate manager that you have to express milk. You can see the shift in just their body language when you bring up the subject. So that in itself is a challenge. Just even talking about it is the kind of culture we face out in the field. And so tell us what location you've been working at. For the past eight years, I've been working at the Eagle Mountain facility, which is, I would say, one of the most remote facilities because it takes about an hour to get to a grocery store or to get fuel, anything that you really need, like on a basic day, like say you forgot to get milk. Oh, I got to go get it. No, it takes an hour to go down and go get it. So we're pretty far out there in the middle of the desert. And your children, where are they going to school? Um, My children actually go to school in Arizona. There's not a facility out there that will take high schoolers. The closest high school is about an hour away and they will not come and bus our children for us. So we have no other option to either homeschool them or we have to ship them out to another city. In that case that my kids are gonna be here in Arizona with my husband. So that's why they're going to school here. And could you tell us your situation and to the extent that you are willing, what you've had to endure there out in the field? You talked about the available supplies and the distances to get them and accommodating your maternal role. Can you talk about the actual workplace situation that you've had to endure with your immediate direct reports? When I started in the remote location about eight years ago, my son was probably about a year and a half, I think by then. And I just remember like when I first started staying the night there, cause you have to stay on site because you have to have a 15 minute response and can't rent anything uh, within 15 minutes of those facilities. But I remember, especially, you know, him being so young Um, I never had to leave my kids like that. And that first time they left me out there, I just remember just, you know, I was just standing out there in the middle of the road, like right outside my house and watching the van leave. Mm -hmm. And just thinking like, gosh, you know, I'm going to miss, 
I'm going to miss a lot in his young life, you know, like he's not going to remember a lot of me being there. So that was like the first, you know, real heartache when I started working out there is when I had to say goodbye to my kids a week at a time, especially the little one, because it's so, you know, a mother's impact on them. You want to be there when they're young and you know, you want to pick them up when they fall down and and hug them when they cry. And I can't be there for that. You know, I'm gone uh, long periods of time. So that really hurt me. So that was like the first challenge I had to deal with in working in that remote location. So sorry, <laughs> that's that just like really upset me. Yes. Um, and Jean, I just wanted to mention that you are a water pump mechanic there out in the field. Yes, I am. And you're there like, with the facility requires that you're, you're maintaining that from any kind of thing. You're the woman on the scene. So it's, a, it's very important that you had to, like you said, you've got to be within 15 minutes to respond to whatever kind of a breakdown there is in the water supply flow. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, it's a, a hard decision you have to make. And, you know, I still want to be able to provide for my kids and do a good job. And doing that, it meant that we had to, you know, split up as a family. So being a, a pump plant mechanic and having to respond to those emergencies, yeah, not just me, but a lot of people that work out there give up a lot just to make sure that we get water to Southern California, especially since we're so limited in other areas. The Colorado River is a huge part of that. And a lot of people that don't understand, it's a very, very small group of people that keep that going. And they give up a lot of their lives and their families give up a lot of their, you know, their lives too, just to maintain that. So while you're managing this kind of adversity at the workplace, and adversity is an understatement, I understand, but you are then in a position, management wants to have you play a role in appearing in a production that's intended to recruit women to this workplace that has such adversity. Can you tell us a little bit about that Yeah, so they reached out to me because they haven't had any female recruitments, I would say, in probably five plus years, maybe more. And so they reached out to me, they asked if I could do this video to, you know, help recruit more women. And being alone as the only woman for so long at my location, um, even though it was super hard, and I had to face a lot of harassment discrimination because of my gender, I still wanted other women to come and work and be in this field because I feel like there's a lot of missed opportunities because of this culture that women are not wanting to come to it. So at that time, I was just thinking, you know, I want more women here. So I went along with it, but it was uncomfortable because every time, you know, I wanted to talk about something that was really happening there, you know, they didn't even want to hear it from me or the production people. They were like, well, we're not here to talk about that. You know, we want to talk about stuff that's positive about the desert. You know, we want to get more people out in the desert. So it was just overwhelming feeling of guilt going through that entire process. Yes. Just because I, you know, I wanted more women there. But at the same time, what am I asking them to walk into? You know, discrimination, sexual harassment, you know stress on a daily basis to achieve something that you are never going to achieve, which is, you know, them accepting you because they are not, you're just never going to be accepted by certain people because of your gender. So, you know, I, it was, 
I don't know. It was just, it, or it hurt. I think after I was done that night, it just like, it literally hurt my soul, I think, because mm-hmm. I was thinking my, you know, my daughters are going to want to go and do this. And it, you know, I only had a few more years to they, you know, they're going to be adults. Why am I telling him to come into this when it's literally killing me, myself, you know, to have to go in every day and jump 10 feet for this, for another guy that only has to do minimal. I have to like literally be like a superhero to them every day. And that's still not enough. So that following day, um, I attempted uh, suicide and I ended up checking myself into the hospital. And, um, you know, they put me in uh, uh, a mental ward for four days because it's just, it was so much. I felt so bad, you know. I just thought, I don't want anybody else to go through this, you know. I would feel so bad if somebody else had to live this life and, you know, put their family through this because it's really hard you know, on the kids to not see their mom. And it's not my choice. It's not their choice. It wasn't my husband's choice. It was MWD's, you know, way of retaliating against me. Well, that's what I was wondering if that was, that was kind of by design. We'll put, we'll put her in such a twisted irony, such a catch 22 situation. This is one form of abuse perpetrated on you. Yeah. I felt like I was literally being punished for speaking out against my manager, um, treating me the way he did. So I really felt like them showing that if you speak out, you're gonna get punished, that's gonna really make other women not wanna come out. That's gonna scare them. It's like a scare tactic. I was made to look like an example. You step out and speak out, you will be punished. And I was punished by being separated from my family. So I'm, I'm very sorry to hear about all that you've had to endure. And I'm, uh, I'm really, I really respect you for giving us an opportunity to hear this story directly from you, not through, uh, uh, you know, indirectly through others. And I, I would like in a kind of a, as a, a small kind of a restorative measure here while we're together, Gina, is if you could, express to all of us what it felt like to have met Ellen Mackey and to see the sort of, maybe there's a change in the direction of how this abuse is going to continue. If if there's a kind of a rallying now, what that feels like, what is your disposition right now, seeing maybe some momentum starting to grow that's going to pursue an oversight and actually reform what's been such a toxic workplace culture? Well, like I was just saying in the previous question, you know, when I came back from, I took a long uh, time of leave after I, my attempt. Yes. And when I came back, I wanted to do something to change it. And I joined the union and I became the president of my local well, and for a while there, I was just trying to go to as many meetings as I could, learn as much as I could. But at that moment, I still felt like a lost soul when I came back. And it just so happened, Ellen was at one of these executive board meetings where all the, you know, the leaders of all the local groups meet. 
And she was speaking about wine guard rights and, you know, the way she was speaking out to everybody and holding everybody's attention. I was just like, oh my gosh, I need to talk to this lady. And she had color in her hair and I had color in my hair. And I was like, oh yes, this, this is meant to be. I have to, I have to speak to her. So after that meeting was done, I, I like beelined for Ellen. Like I had to reach out to her. And as soon as we talked, that one time and I told her some of what was going on that was it like I knew like I found my mentor my leader like Ellen literally has saved a lot of us out of what's going on and has helped us you know helped educate us to advocate for ourselves and advocate for others and it made us feel empowered for sure because she wasn't just doing stuff for us she was teaching us how to do it for ourselves, which literally makes a difference in our lives. So there's so much more hope in what's going on in our movement. So much more women and minorities feel more empowered to speak out. I'm sure Ellen is super busy. I'm not the only one she is dealing with right now and representing, but um, she is like a superhero to us. She has saved a lot of us from our own, you know, despair and feeling alone on an island. We've been found by her. So it's been um, very uplifting and positive and we feel empowered that this, this is going to change. Well, Gina, that's really, it's really remarkable you're getting together. And I also want you to reflect on also now who has your back is the the Los Angeles City Council President, Nuri Martinez. I'm going to quote her in the in Adam Almaherik's uh, most recent article uh, that broke uh, today in the printed version of the Los Angeles Times. Nuri Martinez says, it doesn't matter the size of the Metropolitan Water District and the complexities of water rights or LA's water needs. Those cannot be the reasons we avoid difficult discussions about women in the workplace, as she has moved a resolution at the council to withdraw Los Angeles customers from the Metropolitan Water District. Could you comment, Gina, on what that added leverage being exerted on your behalf, how that feels for you, Gina, after all you've endured? It feels very empowering that we have these powerful women that want to back us up and don't want to use us as sacrificial lambs just so they can have their water or bow down to a big corporation or a big company like MWD. They're sticking up for what's right and what's right is right and what's wrong is wrong. And I truly appreciate Nuri speaking out and speaking up for us. Ellen, you want to weigh in in any one of these details? Yeah, I was just going to go back to, first of all, the video and yes. Gina being kind of compromised in making this video that she was torn. she was clearly torn between wanting to have other women because that would mean there would be more of a force perhaps out there but knowing she was in, essentially enticing women into an abusive situation which when diane Pittman came to us during a meeting that we had with her she said could you help us bring more women into the apprenticeship program and i went you mean entice more women into an abusive situation. And she was including women veterans. And I went, we will help you redo the apprenticeship program. So it is a place that we would feel comfortable 
bringing women into, but right now the answer is no, hell no. So Ellen, what does, what's Diane Pittman's capacity? She's the head of HR. So okay, she is definitely, you. and I'm gonna go out right here and say it, she's an enabler of the dysfunctional people within Metropolitan, along with some of the women under her who are also enablers and people who we would like to see um, simply gone. For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader. My guests are Ellen Mackey, Metropolitan Water District Senior Ecologist, who leads the union's Women's Caucus, and also who's joined us is Gina Chavez, a water pump plant mechanic with the Metropolitan Water District here. And so we were talking about Diane Pittman in her capacity and all the enablers in a sort of a vertical sort of organizational enabling. One thing I want to talk about is the independent outside investigation that we advocated for and pushed strongly in October. We felt that it was time after our comments in July to start an investigation. We became aware that legal and kind of a cynical reaction was brought in investigators to, for a small amount of money, to start an investigation on just the people, the three people in the desert who were being the most vocal. And it sounds like what they wanted to do was cut them out of the herd and say, it's just those three. This is atypical. Everybody else is really happy here. So we wanted to circumvent that investigation. We pushed for a larger investigation. We had three board members who supported us, and that would be Ballin, Trevino, and Ortega. And with them and with some of our outside supporters pushed the board very hard to start an independent outside investigation that would- And Ellen, I just wanted, excuse me, to make sure that when people hear Adan Ortega, that is a director of the Metropolitan Water District director that is representing a portion of Orange County and is appointed by the Fullerton City Council and who was withdrawn. But just so that people know, when you mentioned Ortega among the other three directors who wanted to have an independent investigation into sexual harassment complaints. Correct. He was one of the three investigators that supported us. So we wanted this investigation to follow the evidence and the witnesses wherever it leads. One thing that we found, what I found in speaking with Gina and other women about their EEO investigations, frequently it seems that witnesses were not interviewed. They wouldn't be followed up on, and yet the EEO office would come to a conclusion. So I'm not sure how that works. Gina actually has a recording of speaking to one of the outside investigators who admitted that they hadn't investigated Gina's one witness, and yet the EEO office came back and said, we found your allegation to be unsubstantiated and unfounded. And it was like, wow, okay. So we wanted this independent outside investigation to follow the evidence and the witnesses wherever it leads. We know that it's going to be a lot of money. It's going to take a lot of time, quite frankly, having been at Metropolitan for 29 years. That's you. Yeah, That's me. It's going to take a year to a year and a half, quite frankly. And even then it would be a rush because this is so deep. This is so wide. It's so pervasive. There's so many people and so many stories. And they're also supposed to be looking at our policies and making sure that they're not contradicting each other. 
So we wanted this outside investigation. We had the support. And then we find that there, we wanted this investigation without interference from executive management, board members, and other staff. Then we find that, in fact, in spite of that, two board members were removed. And it was through interference from Metropolitan meddling in outside agencies and councils. And then we had Charles Trevino removed from Upper San Gabriel Valley MWD and um, Adon Ortega removed from the city council of Fullerton. So they replaced Adon Ortega with 25 years of water experience with someone who has absolutely no experience in water. And so in the case- And they acknowledged, they acknowledged that Adon was in the middle of a lot of policy changes and investigations. There was a lot that he was in the middle of, but they decided anyway to remove him and put this new person in who has no idea what's going on. But I, I'm going to go out on a limb again and say both of these replacements are controllable. And so Mayor Bruce Whitaker, mayor of Fullerton, folks, when you see his account in the press say that he wants to make the Metropolitan Water District representatives accountable to the voters to look critically at that claim when you hear Ellen's institutional explanation of how the independent investigation is being undermined by new appointments to the water district directors. And new appointments that will follow along, go along to get along with Gloria Gray and Jeff Keitlinger, who's actually pulling all the strings. So while we're talking about how how big and how deep and all this, I, I Gina, I just wanna give you an opportunity. What what would you like ratepayers' response to be? What I mean, we're all cutting checks to the Metropolitan Water District, to our, our local water management district and our, our monthly payments. Is there is there something that you would like for ratepayers to know or to do that would say, yeah, we've got your back. We, we, this is unacceptable, this, this kind of uh, the power play that is persisting. I mean, what what is it you would imagine would be something you'd fantasize that ratepayers would do, step up and do? Uh, I would um, I would hope that everyone would, uh, you know, come and listen to our board meetings and speak out and uh, hold them accountable. Because, you know, being a ratepayer, you're paying for Metropolitan to pay managers to be abusive to their employees and other managers to be abusive to other managers, because a lot of that's going on, too. They're just they should not have to pay for that, you know, pay for these managers to get coaching to be better managers. They should just not make them or promote them at all. So I feel like it's a waste of ratepayers' money to continue to employ bad managers. It really is. So Gina, and, when's the next board meeting? Um, Ellen, do you know when the next the one? second week of October? It's uh, excuse me of March. It's either the it's probably March 9th. It's at the second Tuesday of every month. Yes, usually the second week. OK, so, well, that's for one thing for people. And, and can we zoom those meetings remotely? I mean, we, we can. Yes, you can. You can listen to them. You can definitely it's right on the MWD board page. You can click through under who we are board meetings and you can listen to the zoom meeting. Yes, absolutely. So, and then that maybe Gina, you could invite people to comment or if it's not, obviously the chat's gonna be closed <laughs> in that forum, but 
for if there's a QA, is there any kind of running commentary that people can load up right there in those meetings? Or or to, or who do, do we email to <laughs> Diane Pittman? Do we email to Gloria Gray? Who do we send our, our messages to in the either during the meeting or after or before? You can you can public comment is open. So at the beginning of the meeting, after the Pledge of Allegiance, you can public comment is open for anyone. So they can do that or if they send it to Gloria Gray. I have to tell you, we found out that um, when Lee King sent in a nine page letter to Gloria Gray after she was first elected as the first black woman head of the, the board for Metropolitan, Lee sent a nine page letter to Gloria Gray and to the board. And we're not sure that they got it. We don't have any evidence that despite all of the accusations in it, an investigation was open. So you could send it to the board. I'm not sure if it gets there. I would like to hear that it does, but it seems like there's a filter. So if it's too confrontive, maybe it doesn't. So I would like Metropolitan to reply and say, yes, we send all of them, but it doesn't sound like Lee's nine page letter got through to the board. Can I also say one other thing on the heels of what Gina just said for- Ratepayers are then also, as Nuri Martinez pointed out, responsible for paying for these non-disclosure agreements and these settlement agreements with people within Metropolitan or packages to get people out sooner. So they are paying for quite a bit of the fumbling and mismanagement on the part of Metropolitan and ratepayers are responsible for that as well. So it's not just coaching for bad managers, the consequences of the decisions for the people that have to be settled with, they're also paying for that. And we're still just, I think, hitting the um, tip of the iceberg on how many they are and how much money that is actually. So we would like to also see that as well. And we're hoping that the independent outside consultant can get a handle on how many non-disclosure agreements there are. And it would be interesting to know how much money has Metropolitan paid, let's just say over the last 20 years. So has someone, Ellen, or, and Gina may know too, but has anybody filed a, a Freedom of Information Act pursuit of all of those out-of-court settlements for well, that's personnel? What, that's, that's what Adam has been doing. He's actually been a, a font of information for us. We're finding out from him information, which is kind of interest, an interesting way to find out from your own agency, we finally got some threat assessments that were done for Miranda, who shared her powerful testimony in October as well as a sexual assault survivor. Um, we found out that there had been two threat assessments filed for her or against her in July and early August. And we were just seeing them for the first time. And we're supposed to have seen those. And it looks like rather than having actually been an actual threat assessment investigation, the security person who filed those filed them within hours of the testimony that she and I gave. How can you file a report on an investigation within hours? When did you do the investigation? Or was that threat assessment pre-written and filed as you fill in just the details and then done because it's very suspicious. But Adam is the one that got those. We hadn't seen them. We've just become aware of those. And we're gonna be filing EEO complaints based on those as well because that should have been shared with at least Miranda what happened, but we heard nothing. So this is the tip of the iceberg, the amount of mismanagement, misinformation, 
things that are allowed to fall through the cracks is staggering. We are the change. We're going to make this happen. And in October, when we boycotted, we put forward five issues that we wanted addressed. And up until today, executive management has not even respected the Women's Caucus enough to reach out to us at all. Jeff Keitlinger wants to treat us like we're all under AFSCME. Well, in fact, the Women's Caucus stepped out and boycotted days Ellen, before AFSCME. AFSCME stands AFSCME. for, it's an, a union, but AFSCME, tell us what that stands for. AFSCME stands for the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. And our chapter is 1902. And we are working hand in hand, but the Women's Caucus stepped forward first and said we're boycotting. And then I think it was less than a week later that Alan Shanahan also joined us, but not to respect the fact that this is so diagnostic of the problem. Executive management can't even say Women's Caucus because we've so irritated them. They're not respecting us enough to treat us like an entity that actually initiated the boycott. Um, So we don't know what's going on in terms of meeting our demands, which were pretty reasonable. And I can just review them very quickly. We wanted board members in charge of the DEI. We wanted upper man, the second one, upper management out of their leadership role in the DEI because we know they would interfere and try to sanitize anything. Um, We wanted any any DEI consultant contracts to go through the board should be held by board members, not executive management. We wanted open meetings because one of the things that's come out from people who are quietly giving us information is that all voices are not heard. So if you can sit in a meeting and listen to the tone of someone's voice, watch their body language, um, are people being heard or are they being dismissed? Are people being shepherded in a particular direction and manipulated. And with executive management there, I can tell you people know to stay silent. They know not to speak up. And so many people, unless they are a sycophant, and there's quite a few on the DEI, unless you're a sycophant, um, you should not speak. Because if you have something to say, you may not be heard. It may just be landing flat or just being dismissed and quietly shoved aside. So open meetings gives us a better lens into what's actually happening during that meeting. I think that might be too threatening to executive management because they would rather put out a rather sanitized summary. And I don't want that. I want to see what's going on. If if they want us to come back, then let all of us, because all of us, especially the ones who are facing sexism or racism, harassment, retaliation, we would like to hear the actual meetings. And then the last thing we want is that the consultant reports should go to the board first. Otherwise, we know that executive management, legal and HR will try to sanitize those reports. No one has gotten back to us. Apparently, it doesn't matter what the Women's Caucus thinks. I'm going to throw that out there. But we were the one that initiated it, and they have not ever spoken to us about it at all, which tells you the level of respect they have for women in the workforce. So Ellen, I just want to clarify for listeners, when you talk about the board, you're talking about the Metropolitan Water District Board of Directors, which is about 20, 30 some people that sit around this huge board meeting. Yes. 
We have from their representatives from all of our member agencies all over that basin. I, was I just want to say we would want the board directly involved because like Ellen said, we don't want some filter in between the report and the board. The board should directly hear what's going on ground level. And to Ellen's point, Jeffrey Keitlinger heading this, you know, diversity council, he's been in charge my entire career and he hasn't changed a thing. You know, I went through my entire apprenticeship and he was the GM and he did not attempt to change anything. And there was a lot of us complaining of what's going on. And it's very wishful thinking, I guess, on his part or ignorant that you would put the first females through and think that there's nothing going to happen to them. You know, you would think you would have more outreach to see what's going on. Just like when we started integrating, you know, our schools. Do you really think those African-American kids had a really great time that first year? You know, being the first ones? Mm, interesting analogy. Challenge. Yeah, It's a challenge to be the first, you know? They don't know how to treat you when you get there. So Jeffrey Keitlinger being in charge of that and him just being, you know, turning a blind eye to the females in the apprenticeship is bad on his part. And he shouldn't be on a, a council trying to correct it when he is the problem. It starts from the top. And, and top. yes, and thank you, thank you, Gina. And I just want for listeners to appreciate Jeff Keitlinger is, Elna's talking about him getting his resume dusted off and up, that he is being considered by the Biden Harris administration for a pretty high level position. I think it's with the Department of Interior. So the power prospects that are in the works right now are considerable. So the union's women's caucus, the employee such as Gina Chavez are a serious challenge to what that is gonna go into that resume where this administration that's trying to present a clean diversity, inclusion and equity kind of a resume is they're gonna have to swallow a lot of additional data that the Biden-Harris administration may not really be willing to you know, bring into their administration. Yeah, yeah, that would be 15 years of him doing that. I believe that's how long he was in charge. So 15 years, he let women, you know, be treated inappropriately like this without trying to help us at all. He just ignored it. So that's why the Ask Me Local 1902 is asking for a state audit. It seems like the future of the independent investigation was in question up until most recent pressure. So that situation may still be fluid. So yes. we, we would hope that working with the outside independent investigation, because we, I do believe, because I've sat through, I, I don't know, probably a dozen interviews, because I will, I will sit there with our members through the interview so that they feel comfortable. Yes. And I believe that they are trying to do their best to get to the bottom of the culture at Metropolitan. But then we found out pretty quickly that, oh, oh, no, they only have till the end of March that they had to finish. There was no way that was going to happen. So once that was compromised, Ask Me in 1902 decided we better ask for a state audit because that's the only way to try to salvage what's going on. We hope that the independent investigation can move forward because we would like a full investigation. I'm not sure how that is right now because it seems like because it's that's fluid. The thing that we want to stress is that Metropolitan is used to and has a whole department in external affairs to keep them flying under the radar. 
They like to fly under the radar. We want to ensure that they stay under the microscope because that way we know all of their actions are being examined every step of the way. No more invisible super regional water district. So I want to ask Gina, with all this that is getting built now and the increased visibility of your cases, Gina, I know you endured unbelievable kind of anguish about being asked to recruit women, tradeswomen, to work in an organization like the Metropolitan Water District. I'm wondering if you feel like the recruitment is going to happen because of the work Ellen Mackey because of your work stepping up, that this is the recruitment for more tradeswomen to come with the possibility, possibly the promise that the workplace will be better and the ratepayers are gonna get more productive kinds of yields from this agency. How do you feel about that possibility, Gina Chavez? Uh, I don't think of it as a possibility. I think of it as it's going to happen. It's just a matter of time because this is a fight that, you know, I'm not going to ever stop fighting until it's changed. You know, I'm not here to, to settle. I'm here for change. And, you know, I spoke about my kids, you know, they're so close to being, you know, out there in the real world and doing their own thing. I want to change something for them. You know, I'll, I'll be damned if I, have to send my kids and they have to work in the same conditions as me. I, I have to change something for them. So this will be like for the rest of my life, you know, I'm going to continue to push to make sure that, you know, women are treated as equals in these kind of trades because we definitely bring a lot to the table. We work in a different way sometimes, but it brings a lot of positivities in other ways. So it's not a, a matter of, you know, if it's, it's going to happen. I really believe change is going to happen and it's going to get better. Well, then this, I guess, back to the original sort of opening question I asked of Ellen is, I think with all in play here, I think we're going to, this is Roman Polanski's or another director with a little less Me Too history himself. This would be a Chinatown parts three through 10 getting this resolved. So thank you, Ellen Mackey, Metropolitan Water District Senior Ecologist leading the Union's Women Caucus. And thank you, Gina Chavez, Water Pump Plant Mechanic at the Metropolitan Water District. Thank you so much for all the time that you've given us on Ask a Leader today. Thank, thank you, Claudia. Thank you. One thing that I haven't been able to jump in fast enough to say is that Gina is the first journey person, woman mechanic, and we haven't emphasized that. Yeah, I'm the, I've been there at Met for 16 years. I'm a second generational worker. I'm Hispanic and Native American. And uh, yeah, I'm their first female to graduate from the mechanical side of their program. So when Ellen was talking about that cohort, the, the nine... Let's see, nine were recruited, six applied, and two made it in, and then Gina's like the last one standing. Is that, that was 16 years ago? Is that? I, that I started uh, working for Met 16 years ago, and I graduated from their program into the journey uh, status in 2012. Okay. So I've been a journey pump plant mechanic for nine years now, like a journeyman. Okay. Yeah, and I'm 
me and one other girl are the only two that are still left in, you know, the actual careers that we graduated for. And there's no electricians. Lee King was the first and only at that time. And they have never hired a female electrician in their apprenticeship program since. And that was 2010 Lee graduated because they were before me. Lee was the first all of the way around in the program. But okay. They were electrical. I was the first mechanical but second female into the entire program. Oh, wow. And we grew up, actually, that's, uh, Lee is a second generational worker too. And that's how we knew each other. We actually grew up in the neighborhoods together because our dads worked together. Oh my goodness. I know. So it's so, I know it's so deep. It's so funny. There's so many stories, but that's why we're so, you know, that's why I want to fight this so hard. Cause you know, we're, this is our family. This is our home. You know, my, this is where I graduated from. I'm not going to give up my home. So do you think that one of your daughters is going to want to become a tradeswoman? Is that oh, what you... Oh, yeah. Lucy, my second oldest, she's a sophomore in high school right now, and she's in auto mechanics, is scheduled to take welding classes next semester through the college, and has a goal to apply for this job. You know, she she hears everything that I'm going through. You know, she knows Ellen's voice by, you know, all our phone calls we have. She tells me she's going to fight with me when she gets there. She's, she's 16 years old and I've been there 16 years. Oh, and so she'll be the third generation. But just she's, she is not deterred. She wants in no. on knowing all of the terms. Are. That, oh, is, yeah. that is, so that's Chinatown part. That might be Chinatown <laughs> parts nine through 12. We got yeah, it's, it's a family affair, Claudia. Like, um, you know, we are all in this together. And, you know, it even goes further as my dad started the Chicano Association back in the day because he started in 73. And what I was going to say, like what Ellen went through with their retaliation, never being promoted. My dad went through the same thing because he filed a grievance a few years in. And that manager told him, you burn this bridge now. You burn all of the bridges forever. And my dad was never promoted. And he was there 40 plus years. Well, we want to make sure that they understand that um, I was really impressed with the, the people that came forward, Gina Lee and yes. Miranda, all understood that as public employees, their responsibility to bring reliable, clean, good tasting water to Southern California and kept doing their jobs in the face of all of this abuse. Yes, that's coming so through. We, yeah. Yes, we understand that that is our major job, that we're not trying to shirk on it. Gina has already described the fact that she had to work twice as hard to get half the credit a man would get. But we understand our roles as public employees and most of the people that we work with, I mean, I can't say everybody, but I will say overwhelmingly, people who are in the members within AFSCME understand their responsibility and strive every day to bring that reliable, safe water to Southern California. That's my commercial, because we're not talking about the agency, we're talking about mismanagement within the agency. The thing is, the Metropolitan is always trying to boast safe, you know, reliable water. And what I always tell Ellen is just, I want a safe, you know, reliable harassment free work environment. If yeah. I can provide a product for you, what I'm supposed to do that meets all your standards, then you need to meet all the standards for us as your employees. Yeah. You know, it's equal, equal treatment. I'm well still said. doing my job. I'm still made sure that, you know, I responded in a timely manner to make sure those, you know, that water kept 
pushing towards Southern California, but they never pushed, you know, my harassment issues. That was the difference in treatment. And I, just as a casual observer, not that casual, but casual compared to what all of you have been involved and meshed in all that. But the, I think the two times I've been in that board room, it's just, ugh, I don't even know what word I'd use for that the inordinate amount of power so casually dealt. Mm -hmm. I mean, they just, they're just leaning around that big boardroom table where, I mean, like, they just like, here's the lever and they pull it. And that was like, there's no big deal for them. It's just, no. so that that's a big part of our lives. What, you know, it's a big responsibility who they vote in, in that board, because they have a lot of decision-making over our entire lives for, especially the people. And our pocketbooks. Yeah. 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 So, I'm not talking the rate, but that like committing us to those immense decisions <laughs> and capital improvements and all that. Mm-hmm. But all of that power rests on AFSME members. We represent 80% of the, the employees working at Metropolitan. So all really? of that power 80%? Wow. rests on all of the people who understand their job and keep that water moving. So I wanted to bring up, I'm going to roll back in time when we had a number of kinds of toxic workplace situations. This is a couple of decades ago. And I, it, it's going to relate to what Gina Chavez is kind enough unpacked for us here is that there was a moment in Orange County where we had UCI medical staff. There were physicians that were recruited to the medical school away from good postings they had elsewhere in the country. And at the same time, there were cops in Newport Beach, women that were also dealing with toxic workplace situations. Their grievances were so tightly aligned with each other, the physicians at UCI Medical Center and the Newport Beach police women. And I always thought that coalescing here would be super potent, but they were sort of divided and they were conquered to some extent. And so I just want to put out there, there are so many situations in August institutions where the workplace culture is totally unacceptable. It's maiming personnel. And so I just wanted to put out there how eventually you might see that this coalescing can continue to broaden into so many other institutions. We are actually doing that right now. We're in the middle of bringing together all of our affiliates, a number of unions. We're working with them. We're in the process of doing that. I don't want to go into that right now, but we are—we definitely are paying attention to that because it is a time when we can all stand together. Can I pivot to an issue that um, is also topical at Metropolitan? Diversity, equity, uh, equity and inclusion and council. That was one of the councils started by Jeff Keitlinger. I think he's finally realized as he's exiting and possibly going to his new job, he needs to bulk up his resume in terms of showing that he cares about his employees and has suddenly discovered apparently that there are sexism and racism problems at Metropolitan. Who would have guessed? And so this DEI caucus was started it was supposed to, he said, employee-driven. It's very clearly not employee-driven. This is driven by executive management. And the Women's Caucus initiated a boycott in October. 
because I've been here 29 years. I've seen this happen several times. And what, what happens is there's a lot of talking. There's a lot of meetings. There's a report that's generated and it's very quietly shelved and gathers dust. We're not interested in sitting and talking about change. So Ellen, will you come back? Could we talk about your career at the Metropolitan Water District, maybe as a further career advisor? Could you come back and do that? I have a story of retaliation and harassment as well. It's very different in character because I haven't been promoted in 29 years. Wow. Following a run-in with the chief of operations at Metropolitan 28 years ago. He was violating federal and state law, and I had to stop him, and I did. That was, quite frankly, my job, is to protect the district, even if it's you're protecting it from someone that high up. Um, and I did stop him. I didn't realize at the time that I would have a target on, the, on my back for the rest of my professional career there. That's uh, that, a lot of years. Count them, folks. It was 29. a lot of years. Yeah, he had been there a long time. He was a highly abusive person. He was known for being abusive, but he just thought of me as some tall, blonde girl biologist, and I stopped him, and apparently in front of other people so that he felt he lost some prestige. So I never got, I never progressed. I had black marks against me. But my experiences, as bad as they were, are not like the ones that report that you've heard reported so far. Right. I didn't feel alone. I mean, I always had people around me. And so my environment was different. I was downtown and I had people around me. I had the union around me. I had people who let me know what was going on. I had information fed to me from all over. So I didn't suffer from this extreme sense of isolation that you've heard reported so far. So it's not only the physical isolation that they suffered from, but it was emotional isolation they faced feeling that no one was hearing them. I could definitely be heard. And plus I have the gravitas of being a scientist. And so that's hard to overlook, even if you're dealing with a bunch of engineers. So when I started listening to them, I could understand what they went through. I didn't doubt them for a second because I know I have been retaliated against I know that Metropolitan, this is 25 years ago, when another highly abusive manager, Deborah Mann, decided that I needed to be gone. And my supervisor in environmental planning went along with that. And they started these scenarios to try to make me insubordinate. And some of them were almost hilarious, quite quaint, trying to threaten me and ambush me and start a facilitation so that I would feel like I was all alone and nobody liked me. And it was really quaint because I knew about all of it before they even started it because everybody told me. So it didn't work and I could turn it against them. But that's my situation. Their situation was quite, quite different. That's why I haven't put my stories out there. Yeah, they're, they're very different in character than what they faced. And I know that part of what they faced, quite frankly, Part of the isolation is going to include a reckoning with the union. So I know that we've already heard some women speak up saying, where's the union? And I, what I can say is, I think most people are growing in their understanding of the harassment, consent, and other issues that women are facing every day, especially women in such isolated environments, thanks to the Me Too movement. And if union male leadership wasn't as sensitive as they could have been, we're moving forward now. I think they're growing in their understanding pretty fast. 
And I am a steward. I am the union as well. And I am union to the center of my soul because they were literally standing right behind me, literally right behind me, when they were trying to dismiss me, trying to fire me. Well, we're going to because- unpack that whole saga. We're going to talk about that at another appearance later. Oh, okay, great. Again, on, on Ask a Leader's Notes. Thank you, Claudia. Thank, Thank you. you. Stay tuned. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. That's my wrap. And for next week's show, Herbert Seguenza of the Culture Clash will talk about his one-man show, Pablo Picasso, performed virtually at Caltech. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Masks, even after your double vaccine dose. <laughs>